everybody thanks for listening to the james from montana podcast the new podcast in which i interview experts in the tech industry with the goal of slowly uploading the collective consciousness of tech into the cloud for more information on today's guest topic or how to be a guest yourself visit jamesfrommontana.com forward slash podcast today i'm excited to welcome jason Della shahi self-described data leader with a decade of experience leading ML-driven data product development, driving cross-functional strategic initiatives, and growing leading high-performing teams to deliver transformative results through data, technology, and product-led growth. Jason, how are you, man? Um, I'm great. That's a mouthful. It's great to be here, uh, James, and thank you for uh, having me. Yeah. So how uh, have you been? What have you been up to? Yeah, I've been all right. I work in data, obviously, in machine learning, and um, now has been a pretty productive time in terms of like uh, practical outputs from the fields, uh, language models, generative AI, all these things are becoming really um, common to mainstream experience. It's kind of funny from the perspective of data science uh, to have all of these eyeballs like turning in your direction all at once, but I've taken the opportunity to get my hands dirty with a lot of these new tools and like try to build new things using um, libraries and tools like transformers and some of the add-ons that go with transformers and like the, the powerful techniques that are just being like unleashed. And then also like thankfully open sourced, uh, you know, so people can get their hands on them and try stuff out. Yeah, I could go on and on. I mean, there was a paper that came out last week about how you don't really need machine learning in the first place. And gzip is, uh, is really the answer to all your questions. It's pretty fascinating. It's not quite that simple, but like there's so much going on. It's just like an effort to keep up, you know, and I love it. You're you're a mind in data science, ML. I think there have been a lot of eyes turning towards it, obviously, as of recent, mainly towards like generative AI, right? Could you give us like a rundown of what data science is, what ML is, uh, machine learning for those who aren't in that world of data science and ML? Well, yes. Let me um, qualify this by saying that there's no answer that's going to give you the kind of like linguistic closure that you're probably after. I think that the, <laughs> the language, the language really lags the field and it's sort of like retroactive in trying to describe uh, or differentiate between different phases and what's really like a long continuous kind of integral stream of applied research going back even to like, you know, really broad public projects, like federal projects in like the 50, in the forties, fifties, like early parts of the 20th century, doing things like statistics, studying how to use data from like physical objects, like maybe a submarine in order to make decisions, um, you know, radar systems, et cetera. That's a lot of what we call like ROC analysis or even Bayesian statistics comes from some of the original techniques that people were doing, um, you know, pushing a hundred years ago at this point. Anyway, it used to be called statistics. Now then enter things like MacBooks and distributed computing. Now you're talking about data science. Machine learning was always kind of like the computer science direction sort of like rooted in more algorithmic theory and thinking about asymptotic behavior um, and writing papers and stuff. That's where I think the language of machine learning enters the picture, but there, it's all still kind of the same thing. Um, and then with deep learning and like black boxy model architectures, then you get into stuff like AI, like if it's not fully transparent and can't actually like follow the dotted line, et cetera, maybe it's more comfortable to call that something like an intelligence. And then of course, generative AI, um, it's just about these things that sort of like generate sensory experiences for people. All this language is very like, um, I don't know, first person. It's always describing it um, from the sense of like the customer 
of the language, if you like. It's generative because it's like creating things that I intake as inputs to me, I guess. Yeah, I feel like that's a really good way to explain it all. The question I always have is, I have the unique challenge sometimes, I have a five-year-old of explaining my work to him. And I think it would be really interesting if you took a shot at explaining to my five-year-old exactly what you're good at. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. The truth is, it's not so complicated. I mean, I think most of the effectiveness comes from removing complexity rather than adding complexity. Maybe that's like arguably true. I think it's really obviously true. Anyway, so what do I do? I use data and computers to make decisions and predictions and to try to like reduce the amount of uncertainty in forecasts. Usually this happens through mathematics, statistics, scientific programming, like Python and Unix environments play a big role. Specialized scientific computing libraries, like you know everything you may imagine that goes with the Python data stack, NumPy, Pandas, sometimes stuff like SciPy, uh, Scikit, Torch, now Transformers, gradient boosted models like XGBoost, et cetera, have their own like set of libraries that go with them. So in like various layers of complexity, all it is is like, again, using data to try to reduce uncertainty. I mean, really, if you boil it down, that's what it is. It's like being actively empirical. Yeah, that makes sense. You mentioned earlier the blurred lines of whether or not a model is fully transparent. And you would call something that's not transparent more intelligence. How do you feel like, I guess, data science overlaps with things like artificial intelligence? I mean, I think that the the crux of that whole description of that whole like timeline of the language, et cetera, the, the thesis of it is that it's really all the same. It's really not different. Um, it's really it's really not that different in statistics as it was practiced like decades before, other than you have a different kind of model architecture. Like at a, some points down, if you like the value chain or like the evolutionary chain of this data from like where the data is generated to where it's being used to make a decision. Uh, at some point, like most of the way down the line, you have some implementation details that are different, um, but the rest, like the concepts and the thinking and the intuition, certainly. I mean, if you think about, you know, even in generative models and stuff, you frequently have to think in terms of probability distributions, um, or certainly like this always comes up when you're thinking about designing experiments. Um, you're thinking in terms of probability distributions. Most of the intellectual infrastructure for that is like hundreds of years old. You know, if you're thinking in terms of normal distributions, which is like sometimes true, not usually true, you're pushing like 400 years old, you know, um, for other things, maybe 300, but like still in some senses, like ancient knowledge. Um, that's like really practically useful. Forgive my ignorance. When you say distributions, are you talking specifically about like what may be predicted or? Oh my gosh, what an interesting subject. Oh, no, distributions like imagine if you look at, imagine you are an e-commerce company and you look at a cross section of your users going back for 12 months and you say, okay, I want to look at the shape of, if you plot like every user's say spend on our platform uh, for the year, you're going to have some users who spent like basically nothing, a large amount of users who spent some kind of middle amount, and then a very small amount of users who who spent a huge amount, right? So you have this really distinctive long tail distribution. The distribution, the concept of the distribution is about achieving that statistical shape with mathematics so that you have parameters that you can calibrate with data in order to say, okay, well, if the data goes this way, then like the shape changes in this way. And then my predictions about say customer behavior in that example are different in this way. The distribution is really the statistical machine 
like the, ge the geometric objects that allows you to do these things, which is what I mean. Like that stuff doesn't change. That's like the same as it has been in old versions of textbooks. That's really interesting. I guess this kind of shoehorns your example of e-commerce and your user spend into a question that I wanted to ask you. I, I want to understand what you think the role of data science is in, in engineering. I think that frequently they're compliments. I think that engineering is about building systems and uh, building systems at scale and are efficient to operate and to maintain. And I think data science is about, like I said, looking at data um, and using tools like mathematics and technology to inform decisions. So in a strong sense, you can't do one without the other. And frequently you use tools from engineering and building you know, machine learning services. Certainly there's a lot of intersection there. I think that it's important for data scientists. I mean, one thing that I've always been really interested in and encouraged people that I work with to do is to learn as much as possible about things like DevOps, infrastructure, um, the way that software engineering happens in terms of like CI, CD, um, horizontal scaling, uh, dockerization, containerization, like the more of this, I guess this started because I, my first data science job was in a very small early stage company. So it was like me and then the DevOps person and anything that I could do to unblock myself was like less time that I spent waiting for this guy to not be trying to do the work of like half a dozen people. You know, right, so I, right. it's really practically important to be able to unblock yourself. And then that scales even in larger organizations as a data scientist, because your job is frequently to again, like observe what's going on, empirically speaking, and then understand what does that mean? What can we do about it? And how will that change things? Uh, are those changes worth pursuing, et cetera? Yeah, like informed engineering based on on data. Yeah. Yeah. Just for the listeners, I've, I've had an opportunity to work with Jason before. I feel like we were doing something somewhat transformative to our engineering team as a result of that time uh, together. Unfortunately, time was cut a little bit short, but I think in essence, we were uh, working to establish a relationship between engineering and data science. I think I've talked to a lot of people and my general understanding is that there's typically a rift between engineering teams and data science. I want to know uh, yeah. why you think that is. That's so interesting. I mean, I think for like broadly speaking, group dynamics are such that you know, there's this idea called, again, this is like an old idea, I think. And I think the guy's name was Conway, Conway's Law. Not the cellular automata guy, but another guy, which says that like software interfaces, software interfaces are basically implementations of the communications interfaces that exist between groups of people. You know, so if you have like two ends of two different services and they're supposed to communicate, basically the API is only as good as your ability to communicate about what should the API look like and how should it be structured and how should it work and do we have some sort of like you know enforcement or whatever but communication requires communication i guess and so software communication it's like frequently the catalyzing force like the forcing mechanism between engineering and data science teams like we have a model think of it as a binary we need to deploy it so that it actually does something in a system that requires a data scientist to talk to an engineer i think just like nuts and bolts wise those kinds of structured communications aren't usually prioritized in organizations because everybody's already so busy with like more meetings than uh, you know they probably need and those kinds of touch points uh, just kind of go away entropically unless you're proactive about keeping them alive degradation of of communication via degradation and communication yeah, yeah. 
What do you think the best way is to to bridge that gap? Probably the answer is actually having conversations, but <laughs> what on top of that? I think that actually having conversations helps out. I think that it's additionally challenging, honestly, like with distributed, globally distributed, in many cases, teams. That's just an extra sort of like entropic force that you have to work against to perform relationship hygiene, like group and team hygiene. I think it's really important. I guess it's the function of the leader to like go about that. It's almost like a garbage collection mechanism and keep the environment, you know, safe and secure for productive, happy work to happen. But I think in addition, like, I mean, one <clears throat> sneaky way that I've seen work uh, that um, I really just copied and pasted from being a graduate student is this idea of journal clubs that are like, <clears throat> they're totally like optional monthly, usually cross-functional team meetings, cross-functional depending on who shows up, where like, you know, in the data science team, certainly this is just like knee-jerk is what always happens. I'm reading about stuff, I post a bunch of links, then the team votes on what paper that we should all like read jointly and then get together and talk about it again, like typically once a month, totally opt in. But it's like, it's, this is meant to mimic the experience of be, being a graduate student this is basically what you do. So anyway, like long story short, this gives people an opportunity to sort of rub elbows, even in a distributed remote setting um, and say like, here's this thing that I did that was like, maybe that paper is to do with work or maybe it's about like basketball because somebody chose a basketball paper, but like, I thought this was cool. Um, I thought this was confusing or whatever. It helps to sharpen hard skills. It helps to sharpen soft skills. It helps to build those cross-functional ties. This is just one sort of um, move, but it's a move that has been popular in my experience. I think that's potentially a really good way to, to sort of like cross-train or actually spark yeah. interest among engineers. So yeah, that, that's, that's pretty neat. What exact resource are you using to like pull through papers? The answer to the question, like, what did I actually get out of graduate school is the same as what resource do I use for scrolling through papers? It's like graduate school for me was about learning how to learn. Like I was in different fields. They were all pretty quantitative. None of it was about data science or really like computers directly. Um, but it was all about um, using math and using data and um, coming up with informed conclusions um, and figuring out like in a really practical sense how to understand the nature of the problem that you're facing and what to do about it. The approach that I take is like, there's, there's a zillion, like there's the fire hose of inputs coming at you through LinkedIn or Twitter or various blogs or like any kind of, um, you know, social media or other input. And you have to kind of know how to like skim what's useful off the top and understand once you have like a subject that you want to learn about, how do you, like, what are the tools? How do you start like researching a problem? How do you move from, the like information gathering, like setting the scene stage to, okay, now I want to go, like I have an organization sort of with topics and a hierarchy of ideas and you know, I want to like organize them like this and go deep on that, et cetera. Like building a mental model of these subjects, that's basically what you do when you're studying like physics and math. And it translates really directly. I mean, I think this is what I like about data science. It's a little bit like being in, well, I liked it because it was the average really between a career in academics um, or, you know, something like strictly commercially focused where you have the opportunity to be creative and be like intellectually curious, but still apply your skills to practical problems. So your background is mainly in mathematics, statistics, you know, general data science foundations, right? Yeah, physics as well, which is interesting because, well, that's another story. But yeah, physics as well. 
Okay. It sparks a question for me. I, I think that a lot of engineers, especially now, are getting more interested in ML, AI, but it does seem like these are two different tracks um, to begin yeah. with. Like you either need a background in hard stats, you know, in your case, physics, or you're working directly with computers and you're learning computer science foundations. Like, what are your thoughts on that? I think that most of the people that I've met that are really good data scientists have come at it from sort of a quirky angle. It's sort of selective in that, especially before, you know, it's also a pretty recent field, like branded degree programs that say like data science are pretty recent development. So before that, it was like necessarily interdisciplinary. You typically came at it from some other angle because there was no like straight path there. I think it's, you know, there are obstacles or opportunities um, regardless of where you start. If you start from pure math, you have to figure out how to go from pencil and paper to like a command line. That's a big leap. If you start from pure engineering, you have to figure out what is the deal? Like what is a tensor? And some of that can be difficult to digest. But again, it's just an exercise in, I mean, identifying tools and then using them. And this is like speaking of transformative and like things that are, keep happening um, faster and faster, the prolific inf- amount of information that's like available on the internet and now like available to be synthesized through a language model interface is such a huge, huge opportunity for anybody who wants to learn anything about anything. Not to the extent that you like believe everything it says is gospel and you, it like, you know, removes the need to work um, or to like work toward understanding, which it doesn't. But if it can get you 80% of the way down the path towards like mostly anything that you know how to shape into the right kind of problem to feed it, like what could be more powerful? It's like a pretty transformative product. So maybe this is a question for a language model, but I do have you here and I think you're better than the language model. How do you think an engineer could get into ML and AI? Like, are, uh, what kind of questions are they asking generative AI? How do you get into it? Yeah, I mean, again, it depends. Like if you're an engineer who has a lot of experience, say from like a PhD program reading CS papers, uh, that gives you a, a way to like into it. If you're an engineer who has a lot of experience building and scaling like infrastructure and systems, then I think that you can start to look at I mean, MLOps, like you were referring to, sort of the uh, stolen opportunity that you and I nearly had uh, to build something that was starting to shape up and be pretty cool. But this gives, I think, an additional layer of transparency into like, okay, it helps to bridge the gap sort of between engineering and data science. So now you start to like see a little bit more behind, you know, the curtain. Okay, I I sort of understand what's going on. At least, um, you know, I know something about what model services need from an engineering perspective. But if you want like a really like black and white line, here's a good version of it. Look at the, for example, if you know something about Kubernetes, look at the interface that a tool like KServe implements. It basically exposes, I think, a difference, like a new CRD for Kubernetes that like is all defined in YAML. And it basically describes everything the model service needs to like exist and uh, deploy successfully um, handle requested responses, et cetera. If that's the, you know, if you're used to things that look like that, start there and say, okay, now I know like a working definition of a model is something that has this behavior, has maybe these attributes and like these sorts of, you know, these nouns and verbs are associated with it. Now pick your favorite like modeling problem, like say a language model or something, 
if you were going to deploy one and you know that it has to implement that interface, like you're kind of backing into um, the pencil and paper stuff incrementally, step by step. And you say, okay, like in order to generate those you know, outputs to populate that kind of interface, it's doing stuff, like it's making predictions. Um, and then you kind of like proceed from there. I mean, I could go on forever, but I think that you basically, you just like follow these crumbs. Um, it's basically, again, the whole experience of being a student of science, if you like, like a graduate student, it's mostly about slow progress and being frustrated and being like totally confused and not understanding what's going on. And then you have these like sort of jumps or steps where you're like, oh, I thought this was like 30 different things and it's really one thing. And that sort of enables you to go into the next step, et cetera. I love that approach. I mean, I think there's a natural curiosity in all of engineering and I think starting from where you're at, if it's in infrastructure, you know, figuring out how to deploy a model that's already built might be a good step in the right direction, right? Yeah. And practically speaking, now that is, it's certainly not trivial, but like it's so much easier because pre-trained models are again, like now readily available. You could literally, um, I think, just like grab a binary off of like a model will have like hugging face and then figure out a way to wrap it in KServe and say, okay, my service is on. Like it's giving heartbeats. This thing is officially running. Um, and then you're like a, a lot further down the path than you were, you know? Yeah, I love that. Let's talk a little bit about what is exciting you about machine learning now these days. What are some exciting use cases you've seen or uh, are seeing now um, in the general wild of machine learning? Yeah, I mean, the, the huge elephants, elephant is an understatement, but like the, the huge elephant in the conversation is obviously language models. Um, I think we're pretty close to the top of the hype cycle with respect to language models. Like they're clearly a big deal. Um, I don't know if they're going to replace all of us, but they, I can see like for various reasons, I think it's not just going to go away. I mean, it's not a fad any more than like neural nets uh, or a fad or um, any other number of examples um, that sometimes, or even data science itself, like as a brand name, quote unquote, that has this like hazy definition at first, like you have huge companies changing the name of like a huge swath of jobs to data scientists. Um, and then what does that mean about uh, this idea or this language? Um, I think the hype cycle kind of has a familiar shape because we have subjective responses, like this is exciting. And then at some point, inevitably, you're like, wait a minute, it doesn't do like the universe of everything that I thought it was going to do. So now I hate it and I have like a really negative opinion. But the, the truth is somewhere in the middle. And I think that we've yet to really find the bottom or uh, the equilibrium. Um, I think it's naturally important to understand how to use these tools and like do stuff with them. And they're not, I mean, transformers, for example, aren't just useful for language processing, but for other applications as well, including uh, you know, multi-mobile applications or any other number of applications. I think the reason that it's a powerful idea is again, because it's so generic, like it scales, like across modes, literally, you can do text to image, like that's um, not a property of any other kind of model. So this is certainly here to say what it means, I think is still TBD, but it's, it's definitely like where the action is heading. But then again, like there was this incredible paper, I think, I think incredible paper about a week ago showing that so we were talking before about like the difference between machine learning and intelligence and the notion of this like black boxy architecture, um, which formally speaking is really the representation of the inputs that the model creates in order to then make predictions. Um, and that representation is uh, again, like more formally speaking an embedding in a vector space, meaning any kind of input uh, now corresponds to a vector or a high dimensional vector, which is a tensor that lives in some sort of like 
space, a vector space that has really strong, um, clearly defined mathematical properties. And when you have something else like a distance function that works on that metric space, now you can measure distances and do all kinds of things, um, make mathematical conclusions. So they showed that if you take that same thinking about representations, remove the idea of the model, remove the idea of training, remove the idea of machine learning in general, and just say, how can I form a representation so I can embed something in a vector space uh, for cheap, basically. And they found that by using gzip to do this, you can achieve very close to state-of-the-art performance on text classification tasks without any need for training or hundreds of millions of parameters or anything. So this really like, what does it mean, practically speaking? Like totally open question. But this is really, I think, fascinating, like really out of the box, you know, kind of, this is like the physics, the fan of physics inside of me. Like it's, it fundamentally changes. It's kind of like seeing unexpected results in a collider. Like nobody was looking for a gzip to compete with BERT or like some hundreds of millions of parameters uh, in a model. Nobody thought that was going to happen, but now it's jumping out and like giving empirical signals. What the hell does that mean? Like that's a really fascinating question from the perspective of thinking about like representation, what that means. Like is all machine learning really just about representation instead of inference and prediction? And it, it sort of like flips the whole thing inside out. You can get lost there. But I guess the function of a data scientist is then to map that to ROI. Like how do you take that and then take like the set of problems that your organization faces and understand what to do uh, and how to do it? Just to uh, give you a view on somebody who's not like extremely versed in data science, in the somewhat early days of Dolly and, and GPT, I immediately thought of a use case for it and that you could ask GPT basically give it a few keywords and have it generate a picture book or at least like an outline for a picture book and then have each line of text basically ran through Dolly to create an image for uh yeah. that statement of text totally. you can definitely do that <laughs> it has it has less ties to mathematics and uh like actual roi and just maybe and naturally curious no that's really true i mean that's the fascinating thing about these sorts of new well just like new models new techniques is that they're so visceral like they create this generative experience where like it's created it's like being created in front of you it's different again than even deep learning where it's like something happens and then it makes a prediction. I feel like I have the shock factor of generative AI. Yeah. Still, it hits me every time I use either medium. You know, you ask it a question, any of the like large language models that are hosted and out there right now. And I feel like I still get that shock factor and images too, you know. Sometimes it's really good at things. Sometimes it's really bad at things. Like generative AI for image is for some reason really bad at understanding how humans eat spaghetti. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wonder if that's um, if something that people usually avoid being photographed doing. So it's underrepresented in the training set or something like that. Oh man, that, that has to be it. <laughs> <laughs> that's a blind guess. <laughs> So I've seen some of your showcase models. I mean, I think if people look you up, they're going to find your, your, your site with some showcase models that you have with uh, computer vision, large, large language models. Any of them you want to talk through uh, that excite you? Oh, wow. I mean, they're all, they're all things that I pursued because I was just like fascinated by the implications of these tools, you know, trying to 
take the opportunity to just see what the thing is about. Like, can I cook something up sort of in like a hackathon of one, like of nuts? Um, these don't take a lot, like weeks and weeks and months to produce, but just like if I screw around with this, can I, can I figure it out? Yeah, I mean, thanks for mentioning, and I'd be really excited for anyone to take a look um, and let me know what you think. There are some cool things that I've tried out with, mostly with like transformers and pre-trained models in different contexts. Language you mentioned is one. I started out just building like a really dumb little chatbot. I mean, a lot of these things are effectively hardware constraints, like in the little virtual environment that you get in um, a hugging face space to run an app. You know, you only have so much as compute and memory and stuff. So the model's like not as good as, as the real deal. But it was sort of like we were talking about um, just grabbing a model and like wrapping it in case you would say and serving it and saying like this thing is running. It was a little bit like, like, you know, the same move, like backing into understanding what to do and how to do it with these tools. Um, and then the thing that transforms text to SQL, which was like speaking of the wow factor, the shock factor, like when I got that thing to work, it's like so simple. And I was like, this is really doing what it looks like it's doing. Like it's instantiating that whole SQLite database, you know, through the Docker file and like setting all that stuff up and the text is actually turning into SQL and it's actually running. It's pretty neat and only a couple lines of code. Um, there's a computer vision thing that's like satellite image processing that's, I think is just like a cool application of images. Satellite images are really, really versatile um, and like a hugely important data set, I think. And then even time series, like that one I think was sort of exploratory maybe from the authors who originally proposed the approach, I'm guessing again, but like applying transformers to time series and showing that it's really effective against like basically, I mean, time series forecasting is such a huge field. There's so many different ways to skin that cat. And if you try transformers, which is like conceptually a lot simpler than some of these others, it's again, like pretty much uh, performs at the state of the art, even with uh, relatively resource constrained environments. Another thing that powers a lot of those things is GPU processing. Like speaking of resource constraint, you know, because much of the uh, computation has to be um, on those accelerated sort of optimized chips. And so it's been, I mean, it's sort of just like playing around, like an excuse for me to play with these things and see uh, what I can get them to do. Yeah, which is fun. I mean, the, certainly the fun parts of working in the field. I love that you're still getting the shock factor, even though you're so deep yeah. into this field. That gives me hope that there's still so much to be discovered about all these things. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that that is like to really get on the science soapbox. Like that's that's why people like science, because you discover things. You know, it's like I was saying before, the experience is mostly one of being stuck. But then every once in a while you get unstuck and you're like, oh, shit. You know, I now understand things in like this totally different way. Um, that's something that I think is easy to enjoy uh, when you experience that. And so I've been in tech for well over 13 years now, and I've seen it slowly stagnate in that like we have affinity towards frameworks, we have affinity towards backends, the way we do things. And I feel like it's slowly uh, reaching, I guess you would call it like max entropy. I feel like AI is a big change up. Oh, well, engineering is about building systems that scale. And if the use case is something like log processing, then you don't have to get too much more complicated than map and reduce. But if the use case is a language model or deploying and serving like a portfolio of models for various reasons, then now you need the system that can support that use case. And that's where all of that like, you know, infrastructure knowledge um, and really, really deep like knowledge comes into play. 
So I want to switch gears a little bit, and maybe this is a dreaded topic, but uh, I feel like data has driven um, interesting results for applications like Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. And the other day, I talked to somebody really passionate about technology ethics. How do you feel like ethics are playing into data-driven development? I mean, we have metrics now at least from these companies that are dead focused on capturing every bit of user attention. Yeah, that's definitely true. I think as a consumer, the most important thing is to think about, to be thoughtful about like what data you're sharing and to what end. You know, I think that a lot of people were really talking about the wow factor. A lot of people were really hit with a product D wow factor like 10 or 15 years ago when there's all there's now all these like digital products and they're free. Like that's incredible. You know, that's that's totally different than any other consumer experience ever. But that also, I mean, it's, there's no free lunch, you know. That also means that um, somewhere along the line something is productized. I think as a consumer, it's just important to be mindful of these uh, sorts of things. Um, and people vary on like, do you wanna block cookies or like limit the amount of activity that you have on social media, et cetera. But at least if you're thinking about that, as a consumer, I think that's important. As that's on the demand side, on the supply side, like as somebody building machine learning services, I think you have to be really laser focused on is the product that you're building or is the decision that you're helping to optimize really in the best interest of the organization and its customers? And if not, or at least in order to hedge against the possibility um, to build in enough monitoring um, and transparency into the model so the decisions about you know, pretty big subjects like what is right and wrong aren't just being made in the Python code that belongs to like one person, but rather at an organizational level. So that's, you know, these kinds of decisions are democratized and, you know, scaled horizontally basically across, not maybe not everybody in an organization, but across like the group of people whose responsibility it is to own that decision. Another thing I've been reading about recently, which is sort of like, this will come back on topic, but like the notion of data governance, which is becoming important to many organizations, kind of along the same lines, mostly about hedging regulatory risk, but like in addition, thinking through ideas of ethics, et cetera, at like an organizational strategic level. It's mostly about change management, really, like managing the fact that this is an organizational muscle that doesn't get a lot of exercise. And thinking about things and data in this coordinated way is maybe um, even like counter to a lot of ingrained practices in some organizations, but it's required by the responsibilities that like having all that data and being able to use that data places on an organization, certainly as someone that's like actually building, you know, the thing. I think it's really, that would serve any data science team well by scaling out this, that decision-making framework and scaling out those responsibilities and creating that organizational transparency so that it's not all funneling through like one person who may or may not even realize the scope of that kind of thing. Yeah, I think that's, that's very thoughtful. Um, what about on the AI side? Like, I think it's been all over the news as of late, companies like OpenAI facing lawsuits, scraping data. They're all sort of based on building models from what people perceive to be, you know, I think we all perceive it to be other people's work. Um, what's yeah. your read on that situation? Yeah, that's a complicated topic. I mean, I think we're seeing some of the leading indicators maybe of like how AI affects the economy. Um, broadly speaking, and how it shakes out is completely unclear. I mean, it's unclear to me as it is to any other person. Um, there's just so much that's like not knowable. 
and in addition, like what should be the rules? Again, I think that's the kind of question that like requires a certain amount of putting heads together um, to really understand what are the um, important motivations. What about on the generative AI in the way of like image medium? My wife is a children's book illustrator and I honestly, I think she doesn't have many worries about generative AI, but I know that many are, are worried about that in her field, you know, AI stealing art styles or, you know, building upon art styles, um, and then redistributing that work. Right. Yeah. I think that it really remains to be seen, like how it washes out. I assume that, you know, there was this, it remains a gray area, I guess, but like there was this whole effort or like leveling up in terms of consciousness of things like digital rights protection with like online music and stuff. And I think it's going to, that's obviously like just an intermediate stop on the way to understanding like what, you know, how the economy digests these kinds of competing forces. Um, But I think something like that will probably emerge where like, you know, it's an issue. I mean, you have strikes, you have people complaining and protesting, uh, rightly so. In addition, like the, the actual practical implications, like we haven't really seen where it shakes out. It's just like so... I, I don't know, awesome, like in, in a really literal sense. Like it's really un, unclear. There's so much uncertainty about what actually happens. Like, who knows? So there's, I think there's a n- numerous amount of industries being, dare I say, disrupted by AI. What do you think is the next industry to be disrupted? I mean, there's art right now. There's, you know, content writing, um, numerous other things, but is it like, you know, generative music? Yeah, I mean, I think I saw something just yesterday or the day before that was supposed to be a recording maybe between like a real customer and a customer service agent who is actually a language model, but like, you know, an audio model having like a real sales conversation or customer service interaction. Like, is that real or not? I don't know. I didn't make it, but it's up there. Like, at least that's something that somebody's thinking about. Generative music, like, I don't know, somebody will try it, certainly. Well, I'm sure they already have. Is it any good? Like, that's, again, like, your mileage may vary. Um, my guess is that it's not going to replace music as we know it. Um, but things like computer-generated images that show, like, when you're in an elevator, things like new new types of screensavers or something like that. I don't know. Like, there's so many different corners that you can crawl into trying to think through what's going to happen. Um, from the miniature, like, screensavers, which is admittedly not a real example to things like people thinking this is going to wipe out the entertainment industry. Like there's, it's not a hype cycle, but there's a similar shape. Like there's, there's a peak and there's a trough and the truth is somewhere in the middle where we are on, you know, on that ride, I have no idea. But um, one thing that I think is a given is that it's going to keep on changing. And speaking to the, the extreme of the trough a few years ago, computer file, I think it is on, on YouTube released a video about how AI can destroy the world. I think their example was something like an AI driven letter sender, like a mailer ended up turning humans into stamps or something like that. Um, (laughs) So the question is, do you think that AI could destroy the world? Like, are we all in danger? Is it like six months? Six months. It would be pretty hard to pin down. (laughs) Um, I do know for a fact that, that's basically what the new Mission Impossible movie is about, um, which is a pretty fun watch if you're into AI destroying the world. There's this yeah, AI bad guy called the Entity, and 
afterwards, I told my wife the entity is probably written in Python, you know. <laughs> I think it's probably true. But anyway, like people are certainly thinking through these things. Is AI going to destroy the world in six months? I, I would guess no. But if it was yes, then the data set I'm using to make that prediction would be biased. So I wouldn't know in the first place. So, I mean, like data doesn't remove uncertainty. It can just help you to manage it. Um, these are the kinds of things that are pretty difficult to say. All right, man, I got to switch gears a little bit and I had to talk to you about something I've been talking with other guests about, um, and it's negative news in tech, primarily massive layoffs. Um, what's your take on that? Yeah, interest rates are no joke. I think people are discovering this in many different shapes and forms. I think that's like the, that's the long story short. I think depending on how risky and how optimistic and how aggressively they are managing the stock price, maybe your company is, uh, these, these effects are transmitted right down the chain to, you know, at this stage, I think probably hundreds of thousands of people um, across the technology economy. It's a huge, it's a huge deal. And again, speaking of things, taking the time to work through the system, like interest rates, monetary policy that operates over long spans of time. Um, so I think that the results are TBD, but we can certainly see the effect in the meantime. I was affected and I think that it's changed the nature really of like looking for a job uh, and will probably change what those jobs are like, you know, a couple months down the line or a year from now, um, just because of the, like the magnitude of its impact on the whole, on the whole sector. Say you're laid off looking for work. I think listeners of this podcast, there's a definite possibility somebody listening has been laid off. Maybe now is the opportunity for them to get into data science, MLAI. Like, what do you think is the best way for them to get there? Oh, yeah. I think the best way is to pick something that you're interested in, ideally a kind of problem. I mean, maybe many people would say, well, language models are what I'm interested in, which I'd say arguably is a solution rather than a problem. And it's very easy to be motivated by like the, the, how exciting a particular solution is. And also important to understand how to use those techniques. But the best way to get into data science is to pick a problem that you really care about or like a data set that you really care about. Like I mentioned reading a paper about like basketball data um, or if you love like any, any other kind of field that generates data. Pick a data set or a problem you care about and then understand what kinds of questions you can answer on that data set or what kinds of techniques you can use to answer that problem etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. I used to say put it on GitHub. Now I would say maybe like put it on Hugging Face and make a streamlit app. It's really easy. You could even put it in the Google Colab if you want to use a GPU. Still for free. Also pretty easy. Um, so I would say like just start doing stuff and you know putting it up like sticking it to the wall and talking about it because probably people will find it interesting. Um, and you you know we were talking about like generating those opportunities for communication, generating those interactions. That's the kind of thing that generates those interactions until they collect into like a in a community, I suppose. I love it. So I always ask a food-related question to wrap up. Um, so I hope you're ready. Okay. Uh, if you were reincarnated as a food, what food would you be? Oh, that's a good one. Reincarnated as food. I'm going to say like a really excellent pasta with red sauce. Yes. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm standing on that. All right. Anything we haven't touched on? Anything you want to mention? Shout out, Jason. Um, well, thanks again, James. This has been fun. Um, and I appreciate you having me on. And uh, congratulations on being a podcaster. That's amazing. Heck yeah, man. <laughs>
Thanks again, Jason, for joining me. And thank you for listening to the James from Montana podcast. If you want to support this production or see more content like this, visit jamesfromontana.com. Consider signing up as a member. Um, I'll have links to anything we talked about in this podcast in the description and also uh, Jason's site so you can maybe see some of the stuff he's been working on. Uh, Thanks again.